All right. So this week, we've got a great interview with Jake Moore. I didn't speak to Jake. Have we spoken to Jake yet? Is that coming? What's happening? We have, yeah. We have, oh, cool. yeah. Had a little chat with Jake last week. So I guess what that means then is that we can just drop that in here. Drop that right in here. No! <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, I, I had to swallow my tea really fast to get that in on time as you well. You knew it was coming. Oh, Oh, I went down the wrong way as well. That's why it came out a little bit weird. Oh, I just thought that you were like super making fun of me. That's fine. That's fine. I was trying to make fun of you the regular amount, but then just the, the tea went the wrong way around. My eyes like watered up. Should we jump into some Watchtower Weekly? I think we should. Uh, so Zoom does a 180 on encryption plans. 9 to 5 Mac reports that when Zoom first detailed that end-to-end -end encryption wouldn't be arriving for free users, it used the excuse of wanting to prevent illegal use while paying for an account would still enable this, quote, illegal use. In a turnaround, Zoom said, We are pleased to share that we have identified a path forward that balances the legitimate right of all users to privacy and the safety of users on our platform. This will enable us to offer end-to-end -end encryption as an advanced add-on feature for all our users around the globe, free and paid, while maintaining the ability to prevent and fight abuse on our platform. Is it really a 180? Because haven't they, at this point, done about 640 degrees? I'm just trying to work out my degrees <laughs> from, from playing Tony Hawk. You're a bit dizzy from, yeah. Like, they've turned around on everything here so much that it's like they're trying, it's like an A-B test, but they're doing it in the press and looking at their stock price as a metric. <laughs> they're, they're kind of just, they're doing something. Oh, stock's gone down. I wonder if we just completely turn about face on this. Oh, stock's gone up. Yeah, that was the yeah. right. We've identified a path forward. <laughs> they're basically making decisions based on the public's reaction, aren't they? Very much. Yeah, it does feel a bit kind of reactionary and like, okay, we're going to see what we can get away with. That's what I don't like here. It's the, let's see where we can kind of push this and let's see how important people actually take their privacy. And do you think it was the public reaction that made them change their stance or do you think it was other elements going on? I mean, we're kind of talking about this in a vacuum, right? We, we don't know what they discussed internally. We don't know what law enforcement asked them to do or anything like this. So all we see is the public side of it. But I think that played a huge part in this. I imagine they saw quite a few companies turn away and be like, this company is going very erratic at the moment and making lots of decisions and largely not the right ones. If you look at all the news, it's all about, you know, accounts that they've banned for political reasons and they're getting involved in levels that they really shouldn't be. And there's just a lot of decision making going on that's not in the right direction, I would say. Uh, so the next one is a really interesting story and also horrifying Ugh. so former ebay executives have been charged with cyber stalking which to be honest makes it sound less horrible than it actually is yeah the prosecutors have alleged that the harassment involved sending the couple live cockroaches a bloody halloween mask a funeral wreath and i think there was a an actual pig something disgusting involving a pig yeah. in there as well which is just it's just mind-blowing actual executives and staff have been charged with this. It seems like it was running within quite a number of employees that were obviously you know, fairly high up in the company. Six former eBay executives and staff have been charged with cyber stalking in a campaign against a couple 
who ran a newsletter critical of the company. So as as you mentioned, Matt, yeah, they they like straight up sent them awful things. They basically won auctions on their behalf and then had them sent to them. Is what this sounds like. I'm I'm guessing you can get anything on eBay. So so the the U.S. attorney Andrew. Lelling told a news conference that the alleged harassment campaign included threatening Twitter messages and several visits to the couple's home with the intent to break into the garage and install a tracking device. I mean, yeah. th- I mean, this is downright law-breaking, right? It's organized law-breaking at this point. This is awful. Several of the group are also said to have ordered anonymous and disturbing deliveries to the victim's home, including a preserved fetal pig, a bloody pig Halloween mask, a funeral wreath, and a book on surviving the loss of a spouse. I don't understand. Like, what? I don't understand why anyone would do this. Yeah. I mean, to me, this feels unique, right? Because normally with stalkerware, it's somebody that you know or, yeah, like a friend or a family member. But this is like corporate cyber stalking, which I haven't really heard much of. Yeah, it makes me worried of a, you know, if, if I was in eBay, that this was some sort of environment that allowed this to, to happen. Obviously... You know, individuals can can group together and and hide their track pretty well. But, like, they're doing this in the name of the company. Mm. They're doing this to help the company in their their mind, right? Not for any kind of... Personal gain. Yeah, Yeah. for no personal gain. That's the thing that that kind of is weird about this. They had to realise that they would get caught, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's so weird. In a statement, eBay said it does not tolerate this kind of behavior. eBay apologizes to the affected individuals and is sorry that they were subjected to this. <laughs> not quite enough in my mind. I like what the US attorney had to say about this, actually, where he said, The stalking was an attempt from pretty high up the chain to weaponize the internet in order to protect eBay's brand, which I think just sums it up, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, the next one. Uh, CIA cyber weapons stolen in historic breach due to woefully lax security. Uh, this one's reported by CNN, as many others, because many of the, the Central Intelligence Agency's most sensitive hacking tools were poorly secured, and it was only when WikiLeaks published them online in 2017 that the agency actually realized that they had been compromised. Uh, this came according to a report released earlier this month. It was March 2017 when WikiLeaks published a trove of CIA documents dubbed Vault 7, detailing some of the agency's most sophisticated cyber weapons. CIA's own investigators deemed the Vault 7 disclosures were the largest data loss in CIA history, estimated up to 34 terabytes or 2.2 billion pages may have been stolen. So yeah, turns out the CIA didn't know that they had a breach until WikiLeaks went public with this. And the report found that most of its sensitive cyber weapons were not compartmented. Users shared systems, administrator-level passwords. There were no effective removable media controls and historical data was available to users indefinitely. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah, the, re- the report also found that they were building cyber weapons and neglected to also prepare mitigation packages if those were exposed, uh, which is not good. And it has come out recently that the password to protect some of these hacking tools was 123ABC. Death. Oh, for defense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes it easy to remember, of course. I mean... One, two, three. A, it's B, simple. C. <laughs> the CIA uh, agency spokesperson 
uh, said, The CIA works to incorporate best-in-class technologies to keep ahead and defend ever-evolving threats. Mm. So listen, uh, CIA, if you're listening, and I know you are. um, (laughs) I mean, in some instance, yes. I know of a great password manager. And uh, <laughs> I think we could probably even hook you up with a pretty good deal. So, you know, get in touch. Yep. Uh, that's, what you're, that's what you're looking for there. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, if the CIA can't keep this kind of stuff safe, then... Uh, one, I don't think they should be building this type of stuff. Like, the internet at this point is bigger than one intelligence agency or one country. And building software that removes security for so much of it is incredibly dangerous. But to not build any kind of mitigation if that was ever leaked is just reckless. Yeah. Yeah. Just leaves me thinking what hope is there for the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yikes. Let's move on. According to the BBC, Amazon has thwarted the largest ever DDoS cyber attack, a distributed denial of service attack. Amazon says its online cloud, which provides the infrastructure on which many websites rely on, has fended off the largest DDoS attack in history. Amazon Web Services said the February attack had fired 2.3 terabits per second. That is a little under half of all the traffic British Telecom sees on its entire UK network during a normal working day. The previous record, set in 2018, was 1.7 terabits per second. This is huge news for people in the industry, says Lisa Forte from Red Goat Cybersecurity, warning it was, quote, enormous compared with the previous all-time high. It's like comparing a, a moped to a supercar, she said. This will definitely be an alarming revelation to many and could be a warning that we should not ignore. In a formal report about its DDoS protection service, AWS Shield, the company said the peak of the attack had been 44% larger than anything the service had seen before and resulted in three days of elevated threat status. It did not identify what website or online service had been targeted by the attack. So it's interesting. Like when I read this, I was like, this is cool. Like this is, this is such great news. But like Lisa Forte is like, no, this is not good news. Like this is bad. This is very bad. Because <laughs> I was like, they did it, everybody. They, they thwarted the attack. That's not the point of the story. I mean, you're a glass half full kind of guy, right, Rue? <laughs> My starry-eyed optimism strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I mean, so obviously that they were preparing for like just over the the actual record, right? Well, maybe they were prepared for for a lot more. But yeah, it's just interesting that the scale of this. 2.3 terabytes per second. That's a lot. Yeah. And these things are usually, you know, botnets or, or infected computers that are trying to ping something, right? And the scale of that, the scale of how you get 2.3 terabytes per second and, you know, have that attack running for, I, I'm assuming was was hours, right? Not days. I'm not sure we actually know how long it ran for. But yeah, they, they had... Three days of elevated threat status. Yeah, it's wild. I wonder if this affects how they will fight this type of thing in the future. If they only just thwarted or whether this was... I see what you're saying. They were just like, nah, this is fine. We can handle like, you know, six terabytes per second or whatever. Obviously, they wouldn't say that in a press release. We're fine up to this point, but no one try any bigger. <laughs> they must have been prepared though, right? It sounds like they were. Yeah. It sounds like everything worked as it should do. Not that this should happen in the first place. And I feel like we only heard about it because it was a record. Yeah. But, you know, nice to have some positive news. Is it positive? Yeah. They thwarted it. That somehow enough traffic like that is so- like, yeah, 
I mean, run a virus anti-check or whatever. <laughs> virus anti-check. <laughs> you, you should definitely run a malware check to see uh, if your computer is being used in some sort of botnet. Or, you know, you're just downloading far too much stuff off AWS and you should maybe give it a rest. <laughs> <laughs> Stopping by for a chat today is Jake Moore. Jake is cybersecurity specialist and spokesperson for ESET, providing award-winning antivirus and malware protection software. After 14 years investigating digital forensics and cybercrime in the police force, Jake now turns his attention to public speaking, offering insights into the ever-increasing cyber threats we encounter today. So welcome to the show, Jake. Well, thanks for having me. No problem. So to start us off then, did you want to give us a bit more background on your route into InfoSec? Yeah. I'm kind of really interested to hear if your experience in the police force has shaped your approach to security in any way. Well, it goes back to university. I did mathematics, still not really knowing what I wanted to do. I was chatting to my mum one day and she said, just go with anything that you love and then it will make your career far, far easier. And I thought, well, strangely enough I love crime and she looked at me and thought well you're not going to go and be a criminal I said well of course not <laughs> she said if you love crime that much why don't you go and work for the police and it was something that had never crossed my mind and I thought you know what that's not a bad idea so I applied once I'd finished university I'd applied for loads of jobs anything not for about nine attempts of going for different jobs the head of HR rang me up and said you know you've been going for a lot of jobs I said oh yeah have I got any and she said no but um, there's this really uh, easy filing job. Look, if, if we give this to you, will you stop inundating us with job applications? I thought, yeah, take it, anything. So I got that. And within three months, after chatting to different people higher up in the police force, they liked the idea that I had this mathematical mind and I could go into the analytical world of analysing crimes. I did that only for a few months until digital crime started to take off. And it was perfect because the digital crime unit looked at me and said, I believe you may have done some computer modules in your math degree. Would you like to jump into our unit and we'll train you up? I thought this is amazing that I would get some incredible training, uh, which is expensive uh, if you're doing it in the private world. I thought, yeah, take me now. I'm all yours. <laughs> and it just went from there. We would deal with absolutely anything. This is the time when digital crime was just going mad from anything from phone records right the way up to looking into a computer, trying to find evidence related to a murder. So it was every day a learning day, which I really enjoyed. Every day was different. And it just came with so much fun and enjoyment. And even to the point where it got into a bit of a dark world when there'd been a murder and we'd get a little bit excited. I know that sounds a bit strange, but we'd get excited <laughs> about finding um, something on a computer that we may go to court and deliver as evidence. Wow. So is it like what you see in the TV dramas? <laughs> uh, funnily enough, I've had that question a lot. I would say it is like it is in the dramas, just a lot slower. Right. I mean, in the dramas, it is always like, okay, let's get that data that we're after off the computer. Next scene. We found it. You know, <laughs> yes, we might find something, but sometimes, God, it could take a month, maybe six weeks to find one file. Yeah. And then at the end of it, you find that that is not actually what you needed. So, yes, it is possible. There are fantastic tools uh, at our disposal, but God, sometimes it would get slightly tedious. But you'd always be juggling six or seven jobs at once, actually. So 
some jobs would be really, really exciting. And then it would be the, the fraud jobs that would go on forever and ever. It's just paperwork and paperwork. But um, yeah, every day was interesting. So not quite as glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> so whilst I was sort of researching for this interview, I read that you socially engineered your way into a police station and you also convinced a CEO to give you his passwords on LinkedIn. Yeah. So can you sort of tell me a little bit about how you pulled that off? Okay, so... About a month into my new job at ESET a couple of years ago, obviously I've got loads of contacts at the police force. I was thinking, how on earth am I going to get a big story that I can pull off? Because they were saying, right, you're going to have to be a public speaker now. And I thought, okay, great. Well, I need a new story. And they said, look, do whatever you can. And I've always enjoyed trying to socially engineer myself into companies, hack into companies wherever possible. And I was thinking it might be quite difficult to say, can I hack into a company? Um, now I'm with BSET, they might not like it. I don't know. It wasn't the same feeling as when I was in the police force doing similar things with small companies. So I thought, you know what? Why don't I ring up the chief of my old you now police force and see if I could try and break in and maybe hack into the network? And he said, you know what? That doesn't sound like a bad idea, actually, because they'd looked at physical attacks, people tailgating in through the car park and so on and, and behind doors. But they hadn't actually ever done the thing with the network. And I thought, well... Let's give it a go. And he said, well, you might know a few people, but some people you won't. So he put me in a police station where most people wouldn't have known who I was. And I just set to it. I dressed up as a detective would in plain clothing. I was on the phone holding a big box. I followed people in. They let me through. I was wearing a lanyard, but no name and face on any card to say who I was. But that was hidden up by the box I was holding. And I got through all the doors, following people on the phone, smiling at people that would let me through. I got into the lift. People would even press the button for me. And I got right the way into the intelligence department, which the chief at the time said that would be the hardest one to get into. I then thought, well, let's not just stop there. He's given me this get out of jail free card. I thought, well, I might as well use that. It's steal something. And I thought it'd be quite fun to go and steal something from a police station. So I stole one of their tablets. And so they leave, or well, they used to, I've been told they've left this off now, but they used to leave the BitLocker encryption key stuck on the back with a sticker. Wow. I went, yeah, hilarious. <laughs> As I knew that, I just turned it over, got the key, typed it in. I then got to where it is the, the Windows login screen. I thought, well, they would have deleted my profile, but someone off the street wouldn't know my number and my password. So I thought, well, at this stage, surely what I've got to do is ring up IT, the classic scam, and pretend to be someone else and pretend I'm locked out or I forgot my password. So I then had to decide who I was going to target. I thought, I can't go for the chief. He knows I'm going for him. Let's go for the head of professional standards. That person has the right to get into any access in anywhere in the police station, criminals, police officers, people's addresses, you name it, everything. I thought, great, I'm going to pretend to be him. I researched him for about an hour online, his whole family, where he lived, his kids, leave it a cat name, you name it, everything, just like a hacker would do. And then I rang up IT and I said, oh, my goodness, uh, I'm so sorry. I've been on holiday for the last two weeks. I've forgotten my password. And the lovely lady on the end said, oh, it's OK. You just got to go th through some security. What's your date of birth? Well, I found that out just by playing around with uh, a few social media tricks. And then they said, oh, we need your collar number, which is the number that all police officers gets a four digit code. Now, this was something I'd struggled to find in newspaper articles on his Facebook in places that I was used to finding, uh, it would be tough. And also, you wouldn't go and necessarily highlight that. However, there was Twitter, which was a private locked account. But his Twitter handle 
had a four-digit number at the end of his name. And I thought, well, I know it's not his birthday because I've already got that. And it looks like a collar number. Let's try it. So I gave that number to the lady on the phone at IT and she said, yes, your pass security. I will reset your password right now to the classic password.1 with a capital P. Wow. I was <laughs> loving it. I got back onto the tablet. I type in his name and his new password. It then says, do you want to change your password? I thought, right, I'm going to change it to Jake is awesome. Just for fun. That was just for me. Of course. Um, I thought it'd be funny if I had rang him up and told him. I then get into his account. I could see his emails, you name it. Now, I didn't go any further because the chief didn't express exactly what I could and couldn't do. He just said, just do whatever you want. But I felt if I went too far, I would have annoyed them. So <laughs> at that stage, I first of all rang up the guys who um, his account it was. I said, hey, mate, do you remember me? And he said, uh, yeah, well, what have you done? I said, well, I might have just got into your account. I've changed your password. He said, oh, well, how'd you do that? I said, well, I can't tell you just yet, but I, if you need to go and do some really important work, I'm afraid your new password is Jake is awesome. And he went, you, and I won't say what he said. <laughs> and then I had to go in the chief and said, I've done it. And he said, wow, okay, can you put that in a report and tell us all of our vulnerabilities and we'll get that sorted. So they now in, implement 2FA on anyone ringing up the IT help desk. They will send a code to people's phones. So if you'd want to go and change your password, if you've forgotten your password, they will send a code that you've got to read out to your phone. Now, that would mean I'd have to steal his phone as well, which makes it a little bit harder. So they've taken all the numbers off the back of the tablets that give away the encryption key. And little things like that, which they've never really tested. So I thought it was a great example of doing it. And I turned that into a talk. And for about a year, I did the circuit, as it were, giving that story with all my pictures. And I took photos of me next to police officers who were iconically eating donuts and drinking coffee behind me <laughs> uh, in a selfie. And they didn't question me. They just looked at me and thought, oh, there's just a random guy in the traffic unit taking photos of us eating donuts. Uh, I thought that was so much fun to do. But it was a great example of being able to show that anywhere is vulnerable. And, and most people believe that police stations are the strongest of security physically and otherwise. It just proves that you really can get into anywhere if you put the right mind to it. Definitely, yeah. And great that they were able to take something actionable from it as well. Yeah, that's what they really wanted. I mean, if they'd paid for a pen test, it could have been thousands and thousands, but um, this was a, a safe space to do it. And I think that's what they really wanted. They wanted someone they trusted. They felt it was safe. I, I knew it would be great and I got something out of it and so did they. For sure. And do you think your time at the police has sort of, as you've been on that other side of it, mm. you can sort of check into how a hacker thinks and works? Yeah. I, I mean, going back to say around 2008, 2009, when I was really starting to, to delve into the high tech crime unit, I noticed back then it was pretty easy for people to go and do anything they wanted on the internet. Crime was moving into cyberspace. Indecent images of children, for example, was rapidly increasing. However, at the same time, breadcrumbs were left everywhere. I was probably in court every month, maybe every two months. Giving my evidence, just by turning up with evidence, would suggest that I had something that they would not be able to, to fight. And therefore, they'd go guilty at the moment that they'd find out that a professional witness is there, which was great to see. But what I really noticed was a massive shift. And that shift became in ways of the dark web came about, which left very little 
trace. Encryption was a huge problem. We may be able to find the encrypted containers, but it'd be very difficult to find out what was in there. You might be able to find file paths in the logs and so on, but still it's only a, a guess as to what is actually in there. So these tools started to become uh, very useful for the criminals. And it became a, a real difficulty for me to accept that they are starting to get away with it. But by able to get away with it, if they, that's for their own benefit, say, in, in the world of indecent images. But if they're targeting someone, it also made me realize that people still have no idea how to protect themselves. So we started to create a new scheme that would offer me out to businesses and make them think about their own protection. And as it was the police, it was unbiased protection advice, and namely it would be for free even. Some of it would be just, look, just please make sure you go and update your systems. That would be something that would just help many of these small businesses out. And so it was, it was mind blowing to realize that the public don't necessarily understand all the protection that is required to stay safe and ahead of the game. These criminals out there are very, very good. Of course they are, they know what they're doing. But as time goes on, those techniques that they're using are making it difficult for law enforcement to go and locate them. I think if anything, that's probably the reason why I left. I got frustrated when I realized the last two years in the force, I hadn't gone to court to present evidence. Now, that doesn't mean people hadn't gone away. Sometimes I just present my evidence and it would be accepted and they would then go guilty on just my report. But the fact that they weren't coming up and saying, well, let's give that a fight, or oh, I couldn't find the evidence in the first place, I thought, well, maybe this is something that isn't the reason why I went into it because I wanted to put those bad guys behind bars or at least help out in the investigations. But as it became more difficult, that was the frustration. But now with ESET, I'm still able to give out the advice, but I haven't got that frustration that the bad guys aren't getting locked up. That's for someone else to deal with now. Uh, I like going into businesses of all sizes, lots of big businesses as well. I've been speaking to the likes of Vodafone, Bank of England, Facebook and Twitter and so on. And to give them advice from C-suite level right the way down to anyone who has access to the building. I think that's really key. The education is so important for everyone to be aware of. And when we're in the profession that we are, we sometimes assume that people know more than they do, but you, have, you actually have to really go back to the, the ground level and find out exactly what they know. And then you work from that and you train them to how to spot all sorts of scams that are out there that are getting better and better. Sure, yeah. So what kind of malware threats are you seeing today at ESA? Are they different from when you first became a security professional? Yeah, so the particular malware threats just tend to find different vulnerabilities. It's a cat and mouse game. They'll find a vulnerability, it gets patched up. They then find something else to exploit, it gets patched up. But the essence is still there. Like I said about training, the, the essence is still there to be vigilant, to not believe everything. You still find people in the sea level that are clicking on all sorts of females, these links, these attachments. You think, how on earth are you doing that? And they, they said, well, I have got an account with X, Y, and Z. And so it seemed believable that they're contacting me and asking me to re download their form to give out my details. All those things you think, geez, really? It, gosh, you, you've got to go back to the, the educational level. The, the threats, they get better, but they do get patched. It's about that lead time in between when they are found and when they are patched and when people are aware of them. But until that moment when people really start to think about what they're doing with their systems, people that 
procrastinate. Uh, it's a big issue. Thinking, you know what? Let's just wait a couple more weeks until we do an update or go and do that those training sessions because no one's going to bother doing them anyway. That's the time when they go and get hit. I mean, just look at WannaCry. They they put it off for just what, 24 hours just to update Windows 7 back then. And that's when they go and strike. And that's how many people fall over. So what's something that really frustrates you when it comes to this ever-evolving cyber landscape? I know for me, it's password reuse. And I recently read a study that came out which said people were more likely not to change their passwords after a data breach than to change them. And that's definitely one that, that frustrates me. Yeah. Do you have any any other frustrations? Well, of course. I mean, it's probably every week that I would be discussing password managers and how password managers work. And they are far safer than remembering one, two or three passwords, which people still do. But um, I'd like to go one step further and I say, look, if you really go and care about your accounts, please look at authenticated apps as a two-factor authentication. And lots of people go, well, what's that? Or what's two-factor authentication? And then they say, well, what's an authenticator app? How do I trust it? And until we get people and everyone to use 2FA, I think there'll still be a problem. We can have reused passwords, which might be breached, which is, of course, a massive frustration. But you'd hope that if that password was to get leaked and then attempted on another account with the same username, they may not be able to get through because it's on a new device and the authenticator app says, well, we're going to send the code to the original device that we've been set up on. That would therefore reduce that chance of getting into that account, which is where I think is somewhere on a level of it's down to the companies that own the accounts and it's down to the users. Part of me wants to see these big companies out there, you know, the Amazons, the Facebooks, Twitters, and so on, say that if you want an account with us, you have to use 2FA and not just SMS-based 2FA. We're going to be using authenticated app or security token multifactor authentication because that is far safer, goes straight in at the top. You're going to lose a lot of people. There's a worry that you would lose a lot of older users who go, well, I haven't got a clue. I've been locked out of my account and I don't know what you're talking about. And if they haven't got a friend or a son or a daughter that says, oh, I know how I can help you out with that, then you may lose a user base, which is probably a bit of a worry for them. But should it come down to the fact that people out there should take it on themselves to look through the settings? Most people don't go and look through settings, I find. And that's where you come across all oh, security settings. What's that? First thing I ever look at in an app. But to others, that's the boring bit. You know, get me in there. They sign up with a password. It says, create a password now. I just want to go and use TikTok for the first time. Um, here you go, password.1. I don't care. Bingo, they're in or whatever password they're using. And then they're in the app. And then once you're in and it's aligned with your device, they don't ever look back at it again. And, and so therefore they think, oh, I don't really know what my password is. That's quite good, isn't it? And they might think that as they don't know it, that's excellent. But if that password they're using is their dog's name and they've been using it for the last 10 years, they can't remember the number on the end of it. Well, attackers are going to work this out. Everyone puts a capital letter at the beginning. Everyone puts a bloody number at the end. Full stop, yeah. No one else would know, <laughs> but yeah, it's my house name. You know, these kind of things is, is just a huge problem. But it, it comes down to the likes of you, know, you and the podcast. It's, it's such a great way of promoting the ease in which we need to be thinking about passwords. It's not difficult. Uh, I remember the day I got my parents into a password manager. At the start, they said, this is uh, level 50 to them, but they're over 70. And now 
they love it and they tell all their friends oh it's really easy copy and paste it you're in <laughs> that's how easy it should be and that's the, that's the way i want to see people move yeah and even with the current pandemic we've seen that individuals and businesses were just not really prepared for these kind of challenges so how do you think people can better secure themselves especially in this new age of working from home yeah well, i think right now is a good time to really sit back and and look at your IT, your own personal IT at home. Because I think the first couple of months, everyone was a bit worried, like, whoa, what's just happened? A whirlwind. They've gone home. The IT people have said, uh, right, have you got a computer at home? Yeah, I've got a dusty old Windows 7 laptop. I might better get it out of the loft. Use it. You know, that's what they were saying. And they weren't saying, have you checked? You've got antivirus on there. They weren't checking about passwords. Is your router secure? Those kind of questions weren't even thought about in the first couple of months. But now the dust seems to have settled. I think we really should be helping businesses think about their IT and their infrastructure in each home. They've now got not just one office to think about, they've got hundreds, maybe even thousands of offices to look after, right away from router to is their computer encrypted? If they're leaving their door open at night and someone wants to come in and take that laptop, you know, people aren't leaving them on trains anymore because they're not going on trains very much. But if you leave in the garden because it's been so nice and you're working out there and someone sees it walking along the street and goes i'll have that computer it's not encrypted those simple little things that's the danger there are companies out there that are obviously supplying work laptops brilliant and they'll be equipped with the vpns and full disk encryption an absolute baseline must but then they're not really helping you out with passwords and password managers i love seeing password managers given out to companies and told that this is how we're going to work from now on. Most of those people then take them into their own personal life and then realize this is the way forward. I don't even make up a password. I can just go down 20 characters plus and it will remember it for me. They're all unique. That's the way to go about it. So right now, maybe it is a good time to bring in online training. We just did some newer online training with ESET. And I must admit, I looked at it and went, oh God, here we go. Because that was my first impression like most people. I didn't want to say that to myself, but I did. <laughs> and then I did it. And I went, oh my God. Well, it said, this series will take you 45 minutes. I went, 45 minutes? But I really enjoyed it. It had been done really well. And at the end of it, I was able to, to think this was something that could be used massively with other companies. And it just refreshes you because you, you don't have the chance of chatting to someone at the water cooler or in the kitchen and say, you know, I think I got a phishing email this morning. Uh, you miss out on all that. You don't say that in your Zoom calls with your meeting, but you do say it when you just pass someone and go, this was a dodgy one. Or you don't walk past the IT department and say, oh, I've got a little something that I'd love you to help me with. You don't want to pick up the phone and say, this tiny little thing can I have help with? And then the conversation blossoms and you start talking about other things to stay safe. So it's about education, like I say, but it's also about just chatting around it. It doesn't have to be too formal, although... It can be very impressive when it is, but just discussing it and making people aware that newer things are coming out. There'll be people out there that go, oh, I've not heard of 2FA. Can you tell me about it? And though that kind of thing ripples through a company perfectly because it's their peers they tend to listen to more than other people. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's about building that culture where people feel comfortable enough to talk about it as well. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So I think that sort of brings us to the end of the questions, but where can people go to find out more about you or ESET? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at uh, Jake underscore more UK. Um, and then we've got our website, uh, which is ESET.com 
forward slash UK. Uh, we're actually, we've got loads of jobs coming up at the moment. If anyone wants to go and have a look at the vacancies, nice. uh, which is quite exciting. Yeah, we're expanding. We're doing really well at the moment. Uh, always looking for newer people as well to come and join us. But um, yeah, most of the stuff that I do, um, I throw out onto Twitter. I'm always up for engagement. Uh, chatting with people is what I love and learning the new tactics that these criminals are after and then working out ways to mitigate the, those risks uh, that companies are facing every day. Perfect. Yeah, and we'll leave a, a link to all those in the show notes as well. Great. Thanks very much. So we've been working on something new and we may have even shipped it by the time you're hearing this. We've been working on something called Watchtower Notifications. So as you know, there's a section in in 1Password that we call Watchtower and it covers things like breaches that may have occurred at different websites or passwords of yours that may have been compromised, two-factor authentication uh, letting you know which sites support two-factor authentication that you may not have opted into, expiring credit cards, things of that nature. And so it's it's basically like, you know, Watchtower keeps you safe. It's the beacon in the night that protects you from all the bad things. <laughs> and this, the metaphor falls apart kind of fast. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've been working on something called Watchtower notifications so that you will actually get a, a notification on your device when you have a newly compromised website through our Watchtower service. So if we go back to one that happened a number of years ago, MyFitnessPal, they have a breach. Uh, we added that to Watchtower. Well, if that were to happen again, heaven forbid, to <laughs> the MyFitnessPal people, you would actually get a notification now the next time you unlock 1Password. And it would say, hey, your MyFitnessPal login has been compromised. And it's just a really great way to have us help you be a little bit more proactive about your security and know when it's time to change things and escalate those issues up to you a little bit better. And this is launching across the entire suite of client apps here at 1Password. So whether you're running on Mac or Windows or iOS or Android or uh, even our, our browser extension, this feature is there, which is also the first time we've ever done something like that here at 1Password. It was pretty cool to work with devs from all the different teams and, and get everybody on board and, and actually have a feature go out at the same time across the board. I know it doesn't sound like a, a huge thing to people <laughs> listening outside, but let me tell you, this is no small effort, and I'm really, really proud of the team that we were able to pull this off. Nice. I'm really excited for this. Yeah, me too. I think it's bigger than we almost give it credit for as well. I think it's going to change workflows into being kind of instantly reactive rather than kind of passive about checking this type of thing, about running a report or you know, kind of getting a, an email from a service saying, yeah, we're sorry, we take your data seriously. You know, you, you kind of leave all that. But as, as soon as you get that kind of ping saying, hey, this is actually one of the accounts that you use and you need to change this. I think it's going to be really cool. Yep. Hopefully you don't get many of these. But, <laughs> you know, when you do, maybe act on them. <laughs> so before we move on, we should probably just remind people that if they want to write into the show, just head on over to Twitter and use the Ask1Password hashtag and then you can ask us anything or you can send an email at media at onepassword.com. Yeah, we, we need a, probably a better email, but that's the one I check. So <laughs> Yeah. All right. So should we move on to real or not real? Well, let's do it. I did the last one, right? And I don't think we can... We can really top that this time. But oh, I, come on. I mean, go ahead. Have a go. <laughs> so uh, goldfish have a three-second memory. So do you, all right, do you have um, fairs and carnivals and stuff where they where you can win goldfish? Yeah. From like, yeah. You, know, you throw yeah. a ping pong ball into a I cup. don't think it's as much of a thing anymore, but it used yeah, to be. I, I won a goldfish on this thing that was a, it, it was a huge wheel that had carpet on the inside. And if you stayed in there huh. for a minute, uh... you got a goldfish. Wow. And it would it would slowly spin. What I didn't realize was 
carpet burns are, a, are like a really serious thing. <laughs> mm. And oh. I got burns all up my arms, all up my legs. I was wearing shorts because it was summer. I got oh. some on my face where I'd like slide down on the on the side of that on my face. But man, I was happy with my goldfish after that. Like that that thing was well worth it. Like the the effort that I went through to try and get that goldfish. My mum couldn't say no at that point. Did I do it, mummy? <laughs> I, I came out ripped clothes, blood down my face, everything. I think that this is like old wives' tale hokum. Yeah, I think this is an urban legend. Okay, so yeah, this is not real. <laughs> hey, so I laughed at this one website that said, "While not the smartest in the animal kingdom, goldfish do boast a memory better than most politicians." <laughs> I mean, I like when small fact sites get really political. <laughs> I think this is an urban myth. But scientists now believe that they can remember for up to five months. Huh. Oh, okay. I'm just trying to think if, if I could live if I only remembered the last five months. And I don't think we've had anything good in the last five months. I think that would be pretty awful. No, but then you wouldn't remember any of the last five months. So it'd be great. Well, no, but I'd remember this period of five months, uh, which has been troubled. Mm. <laughs> yeah, in fact, you wouldn't remember anything before that. So <laughs> Yeah, it would be terrible. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> before that, when, when things were kind of all right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's depressing. Great. That is. Sorry, I brought the tone down. Hey, remember remember WWDC is this week and uh, Apple announced all new things. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, I'm going to go boot up macOS Big Sur on my Mac Mini and install iPadOS 14 on my iPad Pro. Nice. All right. All right. This was fun. Uh, Love you, Rue. Love you guys. Love you both. (laughs) Bye-bye.